emsradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of emsradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS This episode of the EMS Garage is brought to you by Children's Hospital Colorado. To learn more information about Children's Hospital and their EMS programs, go to www.childrenscolorado.org. That's because it was muted. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, just some of the statistics behind child passenger safety. Talk a little bit about pediatric trauma and our experience here at Children's with some uh, child passenger safety seat related injuries. Uh, And then um, go over a number of cases uh, that we've seen here at Children's. The idea here is that you guys are first on scene. Uh, you're finding these kids who are who have been injured, either restrained, unrestrained, or improperly restrained, and you're focusing on the airway, the ABCs. Um, but really, what are the underlying injuries that are leading to this child's presentation? So I thought I'd give you some um, some follow up on some cases that you may have been personally involved in. I thought, however, that I would begin with this a short little quiz. Usually, the first talk is pretty intense. Now, the talk this first talk today was not as intense, but in the past experience, uh, past ex- um, uh, we've had some pretty intense talks. So what I thought I would do is just kind of break the ice a little bit and give you an opportunity to kind of reflect on your own career choice to kind of think, was was going into emergency medicine or emergency medical services, was that the right choice for me? Now, personally, I'm a surgeon. I like to cut. I like to, you know, nothing heals like cold, hard steel. <laughs> And so I put together a short little three-question quiz, and I'd like you to be honest now and just you know, answer A, B, C, D. So the first question, you find a self-addressed stamped envelope on the sidewalk. What do you do? Do you cut it open and see what's inside? Do you check the zip code is correct? Do you take it home and discuss the various options with friends, or do you just you read it and then you mail it? Okay, mark your answers. Okay, next. Your spouse has just baked a pie for dinner for a dinner party, and she's left it on the counter, what do you do? Do you cut it open and see what's inside? (laughs) Do you check the recipe and quiz your spouse on the measured ingredients? Like, so how many cups of flour? Uh, Do you discuss with your spouse the relative merits of allowing you to sample the pie prior to the dinner party, or do you eat a piece and blame it on an imaginary friend? (laughs) Your best friend's dog just died yesterday. What do you do? (laughs) 
Do you cut it open and see what's inside? Do you sympathize with your friend while trying to formulate a differential diagnosis for the cause of death? Do you decide your friend is grieved too long and suggest psychiatric intervention? Or do you empathize, project, and try to convince your friend that that the dog had a happy life? So now that you know your answers, I can tell you that if you answered A to all those questions, you probably should have gone into surgery. If you answered B, then medicine, C, psychiatry, D, pediatrics. But if you had a smattering of answers, then you probably picked the right career. And that is, you guys are out there, you're seeing adults, you're seeing kids, you're, you're calming them, you're thinking in the back of your mind, what's going on here, what's the differential diagnosis? Uh, you're doing all those things. And for that, I congratulate you. So, child passenger safety. How big is the problem? Well, motor vehicle injuries are, are the leading cause of death among children in the United States. Here at Children's, we have a slightly higher incidence of abuse-related uh, injuries as a cause of death, but motor vehicle-related injuries are a close second. And we find that, uh, according to this NHTSA study back in 2009, that, about, uh, that children who are um, placed in child, appropriately placed in child passenger safety seats or appropriately restrained in cars um, have a reduced number of fatal injuries by about half. So there's good, there's good data to support restraining your children. We know that about two-thirds of kids who are fatally injured in motor vehicle-related crashes were riding with a drinking driver. So what does that mean? It means don't drink and drive. Restraint use among children often depends on the driver's seatbelt use. So 40% of kids riding with unbelted drivers were themselves not restrained properly. What does that mean? It means buckle up and your kids will buckle up. Set a good example. Child restraint systems are often used incorrectly. So one study, another NHTSA study, found that 72% of 3,500 observed car and booster seat uh, uses were misused in a way that could have resulted in injury. So what does that mean? It means if you don't know how to do something, get help. Ask for help. Ask for assistance. So pediatric trauma. Pediatric trauma affects a large portion of our, our, our children around the country. There are about 600,000 children injured every year uh, who are hospitalized due to injuries. It's the second leading cause of hospitalization after respiratory illness. About 100,000 kids are permanently disabled. Most of these are neurological and orthopedic-type disabilities. Nearly 7,000 die from injuries every year in this country. Uh, it's, um, it's something that, that is really the most difficult part of, of our um, daily, uh, not daily, but um, our, our management of the pediatric injured patient here is t- having to tell a parent that their child is either dead or dying from injuries sustained. If you look at all causes of pediatric death, trauma outpaces the next three, infectious diseases, congenital anomalies, and cancer combined. So it's the number one cause of death between the ages of 1 and 14 years. What is it that's unique about children that that leads to certain types of injuries, certain patterns of injury? Well, head injuries are very prevalent, and one of the reasons is is that the head is disproportionately large, especially in the infant and toddler, relative to their body size. Moreover, they they are at risk for high cervical spine injuries. One of the reasons is because of this this large head on this relatively weak musculature uh, and ligamentous support provided by the neck. 
In addition, the upper facets are relatively horizontal, so when you have a sudden deceleration injury, the head translates horizontally as opposed to the adult, where the where the um, the um, facet joints are more oblique, and so you have this ability to compress against the facet joints and not allow this this horizontal movement of the head on the cervical spine. And so what we see is high cervical spine injuries in kids, especially um, under the age of eight. And the problem, of course, with high cervical spine injuries is you get injury to the phrenic nerve roots and therefore you get respiratory arrest and cardiac arrest in the scene. So when I was a surgical resident in San Diego, I looked at all the CPR in progress cases over about an eight-year period at Children's in San Diego. And we found that of those kids who came in with CPR in progress, nearly 30% had a high cervical spine injury. So if you, you come upon a child in the field who's not breathing, think in the back of your mind, cervical spine injury. Around the age of eight, you begin to see more in a more adult-like pattern, so the cervical spine injuries are more on the C5, C6 uh, level. Kids are short, and this puts them at risk for being struck in the chest or in the abdomen by the fender or the bumper of the car. They have a smaller torso, and their organs are more compact, and uh, they're at risk for multiple organ injuries, such as liver and spleen. Um, uh, and what that uh, then leads to is, is, is um, um, basically greater risk for multiple solid organ injuries. Their skeleton is incompletely calcified, and it's therefore very flexible. And we oftentimes see kids with pretty significant underlying pulmonary contusions with no overlying rib fractures. So they get compression of the chest, rebound, uh, leading to hemonumothorax without any associated rib fractures. If you see rib fractures, then you know that a significant blunt force injury has been imparted to that child's torso. Here's an example. This is a little... Little uh, three-year-old, mom put him in the back of the car, back seat, good, thinking, didn't restrain him, bad thinking. As she was pulling out of the driveway, he pulled up on the car handle, the door opened, he rolled out, and she rolled over him. And he came in with a pretty significant right pulmonary contusion with no overlying rib fractures. He had a liver injury, adrenal injuries, um, and a right renal contusion. Uh, so again, all these organs are kind of tightly compacted together, multiple organ injuries, but interestingly, didn't require any surgery, did get a chest tube for his hemothorax, didn't re- did get a blood transfusion, but didn't require any operative management. The other thing, of course, that we have to consider when taking care of kids is that you guys are doing, you know, you guys, we, we're putting fingers where fingers have never been before. We're putting tubes in. We're putting sharp objects underneath their skin. Uh, we need to tell them if they're conscious what we're doing and try to explain to them uh, why we're doing this in order to get them to cooperate with us. So just a little a bit about children's. Uh, as I, before I introduce the, the cases that I've collected here, in 2011, about 50%, 57% of the kids who came to us were first seen at a referring institution. Uh, we received kids from 59 of the 64 counties in the state of Colorado, and we also received kids from the Canadian border south, including the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, uh, New Mexico. Uh, the geographic size of our catchment area is almost the size of Western Europe if you take out Spain and Portugal. 
Not surprisingly, uh, the summer months are busiest. June pretty consistently is the busiest month of the 12, and perhaps this is because they're the kids are freshly out of school. You know, it's great to be out in the sunshine running around, but unfortunately that leads to uh, a number of uh, motor vehicle-related injuries. If you look at the top five mechanisms of non-fatal injury, falls in the schoolyard, falls in the home, uh, ski-related, snowboard-related injuries are the most common. Next after that are motor vehicle-related injuries, and these can be either passengers or bicyclists struck by motor vehicles. Uh, Pedestrian struck number three, assaults includes ch uh, child physical abuse. If you look at causes of uh, fatal injury that we've seen over the last five years, again, child abuse number one, and these are mostly shaken babies, but uh, uh, the next most common is motor vehicle related. Most of the kids that you guys bring to us go home. Uh, about 5% go to inpatient uh, rehab and about 1% die. Our overall mortality has uh, declined pretty steadily over the last 10 years. Um, in 2011, we had a slight bump in the number of kids who died, but all of the deaths were non-preventable and included some drownings. If you look at the injury severity score, so the higher the injury severity score, the more severely injured the patient, you see that only the most severely injured are dying, and this is a marker that our trauma center is, is maturing over time. Now let's look a little bit, um, look a little, little bit at um, restraint use or non-use in the patient population that we've seen in the last five years. So if you look at the kids from age zero or one day to 24 months old, um, that's 367 um, total um, kids that we've we've um, got data on whether they were restrained, unrestrained, or improperly restrained. Um, in the infant and toddlers, there were 49. 55% were appropriately restrained, 16% improperly restrained, and nearly 30% were unrestrained. Kids ages 2 and 3, 68 kids altogether, 56% appropriately restrained, pretty consistent number, 15% unrestrained. Ages 4 to 8, all these kids should be, I mean, according to Colorado law, all these kids should be restrained. 26% appropriately restrained, 55% improperly restrained, and 30% unrestrained. And age greater than eight, again, about 50% restrained properly, 11% improperly, and now it jumps up to an astonishing 43% unrestrained. In the state of Colorado, we, we were interested in looking at the patterns of injury in infants, thinking, you know, they're in a rear-facing car seat. They should be in the middle of the back seat. Um, the kids who, the infants who are restrained should have a significantly lower incidence of head injury. They should have a significantly lower incidence of um, overall bodily injury relative to the kids who are unrestrained. Remember, this is Colorado data. So a total of 57 or 40% of the infants were unrestrained. 86 or 60% were restrained. Interestingly, there was not a great difference between those who were the head injuries and those who were restrained and unrestrained. We looked at our own data here at Children's over the same time period. So just under 50% of these injured infants came to Children's. And we find that the incidence of head injury was nearly 
identical between those who are restrained and unrestrained. Well, why is that? Well, it's, it's probably, in fact, if you look at it more specifically, you see that sub, the instance of subdural hemorrhage was slightly higher in the restrained than in the unrestrained. And similarly, the depressed skull fractures were a little bit higher in the restrained versus the unrestrained. Now, the overall death rate was higher in those who were, who were unrestrained, probably because they were thrown from the vehicle. But the point I want to make here is that the, even those the restrained kids were protected by the infant car seat, the head was not really restrained. And I think what we're seeing here is a shaken baby type injury where the, where the head can have these rotational or these back and forth movements because of not being properly fixed within the infant car seat. Now, yep. Were the children that died, are those included in the subcategories? Or if it's just they died, and because these kids lived, we are now looking to see what injuries they have. Are your results inclusive of all kids that were injured, the subdural, etc., on autopsy, or were the kids that died that's excluded? These are only the kids that came to us, so we don't have any of the scene death data here. This is just reminding me of when we made motorcycle helmets legal, our incident of paraplegics went up. Mm-hmm. But so did our, our saves, because the helmet was only protecting the skull, it doesn't do the neck. And I think that's going to shake out the same way with the car seat, is we have more safe lives, but now we're discovering these other injuries because they're alive for us to examine. I think the point that I'm trying to make, though, is perhaps we're not properly restraining these kids in the infant car seat. Maybe the infant car seat needs to be redesigned such that we're better protecting the, these infants. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So let's do some cases. The first one is that of a five-year-old who was uh, seated in the front seat of the car in a lap belt. The car was clipped by a motorcycle. This was the, they were in a funeral procession, procession, and the car suddenly stopped. The airbag de- deployed, and the child slipped underneath the lap belt into the driver's side of the vehicle. He was unresponsive at the scene with a Glasgow coma score of six. He came in, he had a severe traumatic brain injury. He had both subarachnoid and intraventricular blood. He had a temporal skull fracture, pulmonary contusions, left clavicle fracture. He was in the ICU for 17 days, two months on the inpatient rehab service. He ended up with a residual right hemiplegia, some oral motor apraxia or discoordination, some speech language and cognitive deficits. And remember, this is a funeral procession. I mean, they weren't traveling at 60 miles an hour down the highway. This was a you know, 30, 35 mile per hour crash, but improperly restrained. Case two is that of a five-year-old female. She was restrained again in the front seat, this time with a lap and shoulder belt, but no booster seat. They were involved in a uh, T-bone crash with significant intrusion on that child's passenger side. She required extrication. She was transported to a local ED and then with a Glasgow coma score of three, intubated, transfused, uh, came to us. She had a basilar skull fracture with contusions maxillary fractures, grade four liver laceration, grade four spleen, so again, multiply injured, intubated for eight days, ICU for 10 days, transferred to inpatient rehab, spent two weeks on the rehab service, ended up with a right conductive hearing loss. She still requires assistance with the activities of daily living, such as 
brushing her teeth, combing her hair, and those sorts of things. She has impulsive behaviors probably because of some frontal lobe injuries. Another case, you come upon a three-month-old female, 32-month-old female, who was buckled into a car seat, but the car seat was not appropriately restrained in the car, not secured in the car. So it was a high-speed crash into an embankment with a rollover. Mother was intoxicated. Uh, she was subsequently um, arrested. The child suffered left frontal scalp, forehead lacerations, and lots of embedded glass. She had uh, right thumb injury with nerve laceration, left wrist laceration, multiple abrasions. Here's her CT scan. You can see a defect here in the uh, uh, left forehead here with lots of embedded glass. She went to the operating room with plastic surgery to fix the forehead, orthopedics to manage the thumb and wrist injuries. She was um, here for three days and discharged in the care of the Department of Social Services. Case four. This was a four-year-old female. She was lap-belted in the back seat. She was actually sitting with her sister, and there was one lap-belt securing the two of them. Uh, the car hit a patch of ice and struck a pole at 30 miles per hour. She came in with significant facial swelling, which you can see here. And you can see some underlying fractures, facial fractures here. Uh, she had uh, multiple facial fractures, which were both comminuted and depressed. And so she actually had basically a free-floating left face. Uh, she underwent multiple operations in order to um, plate these fractures and then subsequent removal six months later with the plate and screws. Case 5, 13-month-old male, not actually a picture of him, but this is just to show the um, lap belt type abrasion. So he was uh, lap belted in a booster seat um, in a T-bone crash, had significant abrasions across the abdomen, grade 3 spleen injury, resuscitated an outside hospital, transported to Children's by Air, discharged day three. Oh, this is just an aside. Fluoxetine, this is Prozac, you know, it's, it's a SSRI, it's a selective serotonin reactive inhibitor. It's used to treat depression, but also obsessive compulsive disorder. Could you imagine if you had OCD and you opened the package and you saw this? Six, case six, 21-month-old. I just saw that on the Internet the other day. I just thought, this is great. 21-month-old, uh, restrained in a booster seat, um, which was secured by a lap belt in the middle, in the back, T-boned high speed by a pickup truck. He had decreased limb movement, priapism, decreased rectal tone. His cervical spine films were normal, uh, he went, underwent a subsequent MRI which showed a C7, T2 cord contusion. As a result of these injuries, he's paraplegic and he's got a neuropathic bladder, so he requires intermittent catheterization uh, throughout the day, and he's on a bowel regimen. Case 7, 18-day-old male, restrained in a toddler-sized car seat rather than an infant car seat. The seat was not buckled into the car. Mother was driving drunk. She rolled the car into a ditch. The child suffered distal tibia uh, shaft fracture, was discharged the next day to the Department of Social Services. Mom was arrested. Case 8, three-year-old male sitting on an adult's lap in the back seat, restrained with only a lap belt. Came in with a distended abdomen, uh, had acute abdomen, went to the operating room, was found to have avulsed his dejunum in multiple places, and underwent bowel resection with end-to-end dejunojejunostomy. Three days in the ICU, nine days home.
Case 9, 15-year-old driver. Uh, I don't think he was licensed. Shoulder belt only, no lap belt. Tried to pass a semi. Lost control of the van. Rolled it. Was ejected. Came in with scalp lacerations. Um, subgaleal hematoma. Suffered diffuse axonal injury. Subarachnoid hemorrhage. Rib fracture. Distal clavicle fracture. Multiple hand and finger lacerations. Was in the ICU for four days. Six weeks on the inpatient rehab service. He has residual cognitive deficits, short memory deficits, needs assistance with his activities of daily living, and he still has a mild left hemiparesis and gait disturbance. Three-year-old female sitting in a car seat but not strapped in. Mother lost control on a gravel road, road, rolled the car. Child was ejected and found under the car. Right temporal skull fracture, flail chest with four right rib fractures, pulmonary contusions, pneumothorax, liver and spleen injuries, renal contusion, adrenal hemorrhage, four days in the ICU, nine days in the hospital, discharged to home. And probably the most dramatic and last case I have is that of a five-year-old male who was restrained in the rear seat with a lap belt only, head-on crash, 65 miles per hour, arrived at Children's via air with a demarcation across the lower abdomen where the belt mark is, is noted there, and the whole lower half of his body was blue. He was not moving his lower extremities. He obviously had an aortic injury, aortic transection. He was extremely unstable, uh, had multiple perforations of the bowel, which had been avulsed from its mesentery. Uh, went to the operating room for not only repairs aorta, but um, stapled off the multiple sections of bowel that were perforated. Uh, underwent multiple procedures in the, in the ICU to uh, wash out the abdomen repeatedly. Uh, was in the ICU for a total of 20 days, 35 days in the hospital, um, did have a cord transection and is now paraplegic but neurologically uh, normal uh, mentally. And uh, it's a great kid. So we talked a lot about some of the physical injuries that these kids suffer from being improperly or unrestrained in motor vehicles. What is often not seen even by us are some of the long-term problems that these kids suffer, including acute stress disorder, which is really a psychological disorder in which they, they have recurring thoughts um, of the traumatic event, um, which then they try to avoid situations that then lead to these thoughts. If these thoughts persist beyond four weeks, then it's termed post-traumatic stress disorder, and this can lead to lots of problems in school, lots of problems in the home. We see... Um, learning uh, and affective disabilities in about 50% of kids who are seriously injured. And these various psychological and mental disabilities can impact not only the siblings, but also the parents. We see divorce as a result of these types of injuries. We see financial hardships on the family. It really can wreak havoc on, on the family. So I'd like you to leave you with just one thought, and that is hug your kids at home, but belt them in the car. Any questions? Yes. Do you know, and this is just for my own curiosity, is there any work being done anywhere to improve the head mobilization in child restraints? I mean, because that's not something that obviously the BOT or anything like that is advertising that they're working on, but do you know? I have seen a an infant car seat where there's a type of restraint. There's like a band that comes across the infant's head. 
to keep it back against the infant car seat, but I've I've only seen it on the internet, and I've not seen it marketed in any stores. Um, kind of related to that, you're talking about the higher incidence of, um, of intracranial abuse with that head movement. Um, and is there any thought on the difference between it, if you were to restrain the head, so that it still be that tertiary injury in the brain versus the soul on the inside? I think that would decrease the incidence of subdural hemorrhage. Remember that the the reason for the subdural is because the cranium is relatively large compared to the size of the brain because the brain is going to do a lot of growth within the first few years of life. And there are very tiny bridging veins, these subdural veins between the brain and the overlying dura. And it's these these veins that are very fragile and get torn with these rotational and back and forth movements of the head. It's just a theory, but uh, we we saw it in the data and we thought we should bring it to your attention. It's an interesting finding, I think. Well, great. Thank you, Stephanie and Jason, for inviting me.